Welcome. You're listening to the Consensus State Change Podcast, an interview series inspired by the emerging decentralization phenomenon. We drenched your clothes. That was like a surprise gift. That was on. uh, That's on record. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, guys. So, uh, thanks for joining me on the State Change Podcast. Would you mind going around the circle and introducing yourselves? Um, for sure. Hi, my name is Mitzi Brown, and I'm a filmmaker. Hi, I'm Mike Mantel. I'm co-creative director and CEO of Wu and Y Clothing Line. Hello, I'm Eric Wu, also co-creative director and co-CEO of Wu and Y. So you guys are all using the uh, Ethereum technology in your respective projects. Could you describe why, why, and how you've uh, you've decided to use these technologies? Speaking for the um, for the filmmaking industry, at least there is double standards that um, especially first-time filmmakers have to go under that is uh, pre-existing models of um, um, funding arts, especially within the uh, super tight uh, system of uh, Hollywood studios and using um, cryptocurrency and using a um, um, equity crowd sale. We're allowing everybody to join in the funding of projects which empowers artists and empowers content creators and our vision um, stays whole. And uh, the viewers become investors and executive producers and ultimately will be creating an artist-owned industry, which is something that um, the independent filmmaking industry has been trying to do for so, 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 so long. So we're onto something really exciting and, yeah. Yeah, uh, and in terms of the world of apparel and e-commerce, we really believe that the world is trending towards transparency and honesty uh, within the world of products. And we think that by using Ethereum, we can create a platform by which our supply chain in the future could be completely transparent, where people will be able to know where they're getting their fabric. Um, and to be able to have that trust that, uh, and, and, and honesty in the transaction itself. But moreover, I think we're also trying to partner with charities um, where, where we'll be splitting the profit on various products with these charities. And uh, in, in, in that regard, again, honesty and transparency would be you know, incredible to have and being able to show our client base where exactly their money is going. Um, and so I think for, for all of those reasons, um, and especially looking forward towards the future, we really believe that blockchain is going to be able to reduce our costs uh, and make our customers a lot more comfortable with our products. So how exactly does that work? How, what is it about blockchain and, uh, and Ethereum in particular that uh, enables you to do what you're doing, Eric? Um, achieve those, uh, that, that trust and honesty in your relationships with your charities. Yeah. Um, in, in regards to the charities, uh, I think a lot of times people are wondering when they give money to a charity, where is that actually going? How much 
if I'm buying a product that says they're donating 10% of their net proceeds to a certain charity, how much exactly is going to get there? Um, and I think that with Ethereum, we are we would be able to show exactly how much money we are transferring directly to that account on a weekly or monthly basis. And I think that would be able to make our, our clientele a lot more comfortable. And then in terms of the world of, of crowdfunding, I think at least with Kickstarter, you've had a few cases where project creators were dishonest with where the funds were being used. And in the end, a product wasn't actually created. Uh, I, I, I feel like if we were able to create some sort of uh, a way of showing exactly how we're spending you know, our ether, um, I think that would be able to make our customers a lot more comfortable with what we're doing. Absolutely. So this kind of comes back to the equity uh, crowdfunding that you were talking about, Mitzi. So what is it about equity crowdfunding that changes the landscape of an independent art industry? Right. So, well, the way it works is that, well, as you know, or might not know, it's hard to fund, uh, to fund arts and filmmaking particularly is probably the most expensive um, art form. And the way usually it works is that studios um, split up the cost between investors and uh, producers. So producers take 50% and investors take 50%, leaving the artists with literally nothing. And it's strange because artists devote their life to creating more life, to uh, informing society. And if you think about Greek theater, it was born during a time, a time of darkness that is like war. And theater would happen and you would go through a process of catharsis and like be whole again and complete. Artists should not be uh, considered outcasts and underdogs. We should not be looked down upon like struggling artists and starving artists. But with the equity crowd sale, we're able to give exactly what our viewers want by making them um, investors and contributors and executive producers and we get to keep some of the profits so that we don't have to go into the next film making something that Hollywood has seen a million times, that everybody has seen a million times. Because it's what happens exactly with pop music too or anything that gets repetitive. It's safe. It's familiar. People know it will work. People will know it will make money. It's profitable. It's marketable. But like, what are we losing? We're losing authenticity. And about transparency also, um, if we are able to connect, truly connect with our audience by making them part of the creation itself, um, we can establish a true connection. And for instance, what we are going to do during the campaign is that every single time that we get money for anything, um, aside from the fact that there's going to be a specific and clear breakdown of every stage of production, we're going to release an episode of a uh, um, docuseries that's going to explain where the money is going. So say the first 10K goes to location, we're going to go location hunting hunting, and we're going to go to all these different houses and you know, talk to the owners and explain to them what we're going to do. And yeah, everything is going to be documented. We're going to see, we're going to show every single moment of it. So I'd like to talk about the specific projects that you guys are working on uh, and what your plans are moving forward with them. And I know that the, there aren't necessarily um, strict timeframes with what you're working on, Mitzi. But Eric and Mike, where are you guys right now with your fashion label and, uh, and what are your plans to develop it in the future? Yeah, so uh, I think that's a great question. Um, 
Right now, we have stumbled upon a new era of manufacturing, and that's on-demand manufacturing. That's not what you're expecting in terms of like Custom Inc. or any of these places where you go online and design a t-shirt and they send it to you. These are places where you can create a custom garment, you can print it using very high-tech printing technology, and then they cut and sew it together when the customer places the order. Which means for us, we can experiment with a lot of different things. So right now, we're actually working on three different clothing lines. One is Woo and Why, uh, which was which we had a very successful Kickstarter for, raised forty thousand dollars in a month, and that is around revolutionizing the way we look at activewear by making it radically expressive, by optimizing it for functionality, and um, what we hope to do with that going forward is you know, creating a pair of shorts for male yogis, right? And one thing that we haven't really seen before. Uh, so far, we created the adventure shorts, which have stabilized zip pockets, have a secret pocket in the waistband, are made of an athletic fabric, and are designed by artists around the world. Um, so that's, that's one. That's the active line that we're working on. The second one is an experimental art line where... Because of this access to on-demand manufacturing, we can scale up to 100 designs, even 200 designs, and have no order minimums and just see what people like and keep making that and iterate and come out with new designs monthly, weekly, even daily. Uh, And then our third project, uh, which is something that we spoke about briefly already, is the the Charity Collective, uh, where we are going to be working with various charities, talking to them about their values and designing garments that reflect their values. So for example, if we were to partner with someone like the American Bird Conservancy, we'd find an artist that they really love who does a lot of portraits of birds and we design in a way that looks stylish and then we would split that profit with the charities. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're, 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 we're young fashion label trying to do things in the newest and the craziest ways possible, trying to iterate, trying to test and trying to experiment. And that's sort of the way we see uh, Ethereum is another avenue for us to experiment and see what comes with it. Because we do believe that Ethereum is the future of of a lot of uh, different technology systems. And just to tack on to that, Eric, as you mentioned with the new possibility of on-demand cut and sew manufacturing for clothing, we can be experimental within a line, like um, the line you're talking about. We can keep putting out new designs, new fits, but we can also be experimental with our projects too. So on the whole, we can really just continue to hone in on what works and not be afraid to try stuff. And so I think that's a pretty exciting opportunity. And I suppose also, so these can be uh, made to order. So so you can take an order from a customer and uh and produce a unique garment for that individual customer? Or is this like individual lines where maybe you've got a 500-unit run? That's a very good question. Um, I think if we were to make a unique garment for a customer, that puts us more towards almost like a hokator kind of like line, right? Uh, I don't – that down the line is definitely a possibility and something that we would love to experiment with. Um, but I think right now where we see the value in this is – being able to create what we believe is a very good and very new custom garment for a customer and um, then use that technology to test different designs that we'd be able to put on it. Um, And in some cases, you know, some designs might only get one sale, 
uh, and some might be able to get a thousand. Um, and so in which case we'd be able to use that to hone in on where the market is and where the customers, like what, what designs customers like the most. So what I'm trying to figure out though, so are you, uh, you're tooling for a line and then you manufacture each one, each unit on that line as the order comes in. Okay, right. But you still need to tool up. So you, you've got an outlay for the tooling and then a, uh, and then individual outlay for each one afterwards. Right. So if we have, if we're offering 20 different designs and you go online and you say, Oh, that pink one is really cool. Then once you order it, we can produce that garment for you and send it to you. And so the tooling has taken place in the background and that's like the overhead of having that skew, right? That unit and then available and then, uh, and then you only pay for the cost of each unit produced as opposed to exactly. producing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you want to think about the old model of, you know, apparel manufacturing and, 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 and selling is that a designer creates anywhere from tw- 25 to 40 different looks across a variety of garments. And he thinks and he hopes and he prays that the customer will love these designs. Then he goes out probably to China, probably to, you know, a foreign country that has that that is able to to have the best prices. And he gets all of his garments made. And he at that time when he pays, places that initial order, needs to tell them exactly how many he's gonna he's gonna make for that season. And then all of those orders come get shipped to the US and they get fulfilled. So the problem with that though is that he doesn't quite know what customers are going to like. There's going to be a lot of excess inventory, so he charges a huge markup on the clothing in the beginning of the season and then has a lot of sales near the end to move that inventory out. Whereas for us now, we can just come up with designs ad hoc whenever we want to with no order minimums and test very quickly. So when I go into Macy's and I see all these sales on, that's because the full price, the actual price, there's a, a, is a gradient where the full price, they charge a whole bunch at the start because they're going to make up their costs for the entire, their entire inventory. Yeah. And as they make that up, right, then they, then they can lower the price, lo- lower. Yeah. Okay. So it's an inventory management thing. It's right. You're eliminating the leftovers so you can react immediately to the actual data. Which is great for sustainability, right? Because now instead of all these clothing that Macy's isn't able to sell that now goes to Marshalls and when they're not able to sell, they get, you know, that happens and they end up in landfills. Um, And so clothing waste is actually a huge problem. Um, And I love what this whole youth movement of going to thrift stores and vintage stores, that's a great way of, you know, reusing, reducing, recycling. Um, And for us to create new things, let's just make it on demand and not a single garment will go unused. So how do, and this is something we've been talking about recently is provenance in the supply chain, actually figuring out where stuff has come from and making sure that it was produced ethically. Uh, how do you, do you have any initiative for, um, ensuring the, uh, the ethical production of what your, of your products? And do you have a way of tracking through the supply chain where each of these products and the materials from these products come from? We're having trouble with materials still. Um, because materials are, especially for a designer, is a little bit of a black box. You know, you go to a manufacturer and they have all these fabrics for you and you sort of pick one. Um, and uh, so that's something that we hope by having our manufacturers, you know, in the future down the line, get on Ethereum. That is something that we would love to be able to see. 
knowing that this cotton came from a certain, you know, even going down to where the, the, the sheep is, right? And um, this is that, that sheep for, for, for wool, for wool cotton <laughs> going down to where, yeah, sorry, get, get a little mix, mixed up. But, but I think right now what we love about on-demand manufacturing is that when we place an order, all of our manufacturers are in LA. And so we are now essentially able to track each garment through the step of the process because it's now being made. It's now entering, you know, it's in, entering printing. Now it's entering cut and sew. Now it's getting packaged. Now it's getting fulfilled. Um, and so, you know, having transparency throughout the whole supply chain, not only does it does it enlighten our customers, but it makes our job of being able to reduce our costs and know exactly where money's being spent and being able to know that all the garments are manufactured domestically and ethically. Um, I think that for us is a huge benefit. So we still, so the problem that we need to work on now to complete this, uh, this provenance chain is to work on the actual, uh, the actual materials producers themselves. The materials producers, uh, which, you know, make the fabric. And then of course the production facility that takes this fabric and then cuts and sews it together. If we can get, people down the supply chain onto the Ethereum platform. Um, I think mean, we're going to see a huge change in, 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 in my mind, how people perceive the manufacture of clothing. And as a result, completely change how they believe uh, where the value of clothing actually is. Um, and being able to recognize, you know, and, and really making the environmental effects and the sustainability aspect of it very clear. So we've heard a bunch about woo and why. Can you tell us a bit about Braid and, and what you're doing there? Um, so I am the writer director of Braid. That is a uh, psychological thriller about two girls who moved to New York City to become artists, um, to follow their dreams and end up getting caught in illegal activities um, to get by. One night they um, lose $80,000 worth of drugs and their drug lord gives them 48 hours to get the money. Um, the girls end up going to their oldest friend's house, um, this porcelain doll, and um, she has developed schizophrenia, but she lives alone in the house with a safe hidden somewhere in there. She inherited a ton of money, and the girls are going there with the intention of robbing her, but they... Um, have to take part in our game of make-believe in order to find to stay in the house and find the safe. So it's similar to Funny Games and Clockwork Orange, but it's all <laughs> girls and it's the psycho wonderland slow-motion robbery within someone's mind and the projection of this person that's considered to be insane um, mind and they escape reality in order to into a fantasy world in, or, in order to fix reality like epic heroes descending in hell they go into the underworld in order to come back to the real world whole and complete but um they get stuck along the way and what's really important to me and that i think it's important for everybody to know who sees this movie is that there is it's the house the 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 place where they the girls get stuck in it's a psychological and metaphorical place of all the things that we settle for that we surrender to of our life the fact that we uh, accept something as our only reality our only option it does not mean that that's necessarily the only way um and that is why i'm 
might kind of be more excited to have partner up with consensus because we believe in the same values there are to like do what you love and give people a chance and believing in what you do and jumping into the unknown that uh, there is uh, it's terrifying, but at the same time, you have to do it because otherwise you get stuck in jobs that you don't like and relationships that kill you. So it's interesting you mentioned funny games because, I mean, first of all, that was one of the best, well, it's two movies, right? And that was one of the best horror movies of all time. Absolutely. Okay. It was totally amazing. And uh, and it came out in 97. It was produced by, I forget the guy's name, Austrian guy. And then 10 years later. Panicky. Is that his, what's his name? Panicky. Yeah, it's it was amazing, and it's the only film he's ever he's ever made, isn't it? The idea behind Funny Games and also behind Cockroach Orange is that the per, the thing that you can that you should be dreading the most is human beings, but most importantly yourself. Um, yourself in the in the case of Cockroach Orange, this like glorification of violence um, as a form of nihilism. Um, and Funny Games is exceptional because there's no use of supernatural forces or anything like that. And it doesn't explain why people behave the way they do. It just happens. And um, and it's so sterile and there's so little violence in it um, as well. And, and so little on-screen violence, just a lot of them. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was brutal. And then what was weird, though, was that... Ten years later, the same guy make, remakes his Austrian film in English with American actors, and it's just identical, shot for shot, practically, anyway. And uh, what struck me about that was that here you've got this incredibly exceptional film, and it's like it was almost it's, it was proven to be successful, so they remade it identically. Whereas could it didn't we- do really well. They spent a lot of money and on the American one with um, uh, Tim Roth uh, and Naomi Watts. It ended really well. If it, uh, actually, a better example would be um, um, Suicide Squad. It came out last week. Stellar cast. Uh, Margot Robbie is in it and Jared Leto and Will Smith. Uh, they spent $125 million to make it. And they're barely making their money back. And yet the formula is, formula is perfect. It's stellar cast, and they're monetizing on something that's been doing great forever, which is, like, comic books and Marvel. Um, but uh, the audience didn't like it. They got 23% of rot- on Rotten Tomatoes, which is really, really low. And critics didn't like it, and, although it should have worked, and yet it didn't. Why didn't it, why didn't it work? I have not seen the movie, but... What I can say is that repeating the same model over and over, eventually it will make you tired. And just because something has been working this whole time, it does not mean that it has to stay that way. Um, it's, it's important that every single time the society has moved forward, it was because people faced that something was wrong. A few, a small group of very brave people realized that we were going through a moment of darkness and decided to... Uh, admit it and do something about it. And most people go by their entire lives settling for whatever it is that it's given to them. That is the same theme of braid. That is, you don't have to stay stuck in the house, whatever that is. The psychological trap that you get yourself that you get yourself into. You can't get out. You have to get out because this is not your practice life. So the problem that is 
that we're having here is that, and tell me if if I'm if I'm kind of wide of the mark here, is that the traditional way of producing film and culture in general is a for profit is is for profit, and and so there's a uh, there's an there's an incentive there, or so the methodology is designed around predictable returns and stuff that has worked in the past. Uh, and what we're seeing now with examples like Suicide Squad is that the public is getting bored of it, but there's no uh, experimentation taking place uh, to provide new and interesting and exciting cultural content. Absolutely. Experiment- experimentation doesn't happen because there's no money for it. Uh, and that's the whole problem with the independent filmmaking industry. It was born in order to create an opposition to the Hollywood studio system that is usually an average of $30 million per movie. And independent filmmakers aim for like half a mil or a mil at most. And uh, the problem is, though, that nobody wants to bet on something that's never been done before because why should they? Uh, It takes someone really courageous to do something that's never been done before. And filmmakers tend to not have the money unless there was, like, some rich uncle or anything that really could come through. Um, And it's really important, in my opinion, that we dismantle the idea of filmmaking and arts in general as something that's only uh, available to the rich and well-connected because there is so many artists out there that never had a chance to express themselves that could have... Uh, helped people along the way because that is why we that is at the core of expression we express ourselves so that we can make other people feel with us whether it's sadness or happiness we are part of one consciousness everybody feels the same things or at least if someone has felt something you can trust that someone else along the way will have felt the same way that is why we connect to music that's been created centuries ago that's why we feel for paintings that were made yeah in the past because we feel the same things and it's important that the vision of the artist stays whole and intact instead of being made marketable and profitable and put in a box otherwise we're killing human consciousness we're killing society so uh where can people find out more about what you guys are working on and uh, and, and just follow up yeah, we, um, my production company is called Somnia. It's S-O-M-N-I-A. It means dreams in Latin. It's like insomnia, but without the I-N. Um, and yeah, Braid is on it. And you guys can see the trailer. It's a one-minute concept trailer. It's, um, it won an um, uh, IndieWire project of the day. And the screenplay uh, was uh, listed as top 50 by the International Screenwriters Association. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Awesome. And and what about Woo and Why? Yeah, you can find Woo and Why on our website, uh, Uh At this particular moment, we're sold out, but uh, by, this t- by the time the podcast comes out, I think we'll be able to restock. Again, because when we did the, our first crowd sale, uh, you know, we had to do things the traditional way, and now we're trying to move things on demand. So that's the exact problem that we're trying to solve: <laughs> is never being out of stock and always having new, different styles. 
Cool. Well, thanks a bunch for joining me, guys. This has been great. I uh, look forward to seeing how these projects progress, and I'm sure we'll touch base again in the future. Thank you so much for having us, Arthur. Thanks for listening to State Change. Check out consensusmedia.net for more. Thank you.